Welcome to the So What's Next podcast, a podcast for Bennies and Johnnies, by Bennies and Johnnies, answering some of the biggest questions and making meaningful connections between alums and the world around us. and welcome back to So What's Next, a podcast helping alums and students navigate uncertain futures through stories and narratives from those who have experiences to share. Odds are, whether you are approaching your 50th reunion, climbing the ladder of corporate America while balancing a family, mortgage, and endless other tasks, fresh out of college and finding your way, or in the thick of your studies, you've wondered if that degree received upon graduating is worth it. The constant questioning does not come without merit. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Outstanding student debt at the end of the third quarter of 2019 stood at a staggering $1.5 trillion. In 1982, before financial aid, the cost of tuition plus room and board to attend St. John's University and the College of St. Benedict stood between $5,000 and $7,000 per year. For the 2021 and 2022 academic year, before financial aid, the full room and board plus tuition costs to attend St. Ben's and St. John's is $61,700 and $61,434 per year, respectively. Now, I could spend the next 5 to 10 minutes talking to you about how very, very few people pay the upfront price to attend CSBSJU, and it is, in fact, much lower than that after items such as financial aid and scholarships, but even after those items are factored in, four-year attendance today is exponentially, like 5 to 10x, more costly than it was 40 years ago. Staying on the topic of dollars and cents, it's important to point out that even though a four-year college degree is an extraordinarily large expense in 2021, economists and researchers have long argued that a college degree, even with debt, is worth it. According to a 2016 report released by the College Board, the median graduate of a four-year college can expect to earn as much right after leaving campus as the median high school graduate can at age 34. Anecdotally speaking, I'd wager that many people listening to this podcast grew up in a family that believed in the power of education serving as a vessel for social mobility, providing the right tools to live a more fulfilling life than we would have otherwise had. However, after a few minutes of scrolling through any social media platform, you'll find an abundance of day traders, entrepreneurs, and influencers claiming that college is a waste of time. And with modern day tools and resources available on the internet, like access to world-class professors, courses, and experiential learning opportunities, it's becoming harder to ignore them. What is more, college is still remarkably inaccessible to Americans. Generation Z is the most educated group in our country's history, yet only one-third of Americans over 25 have completed a four-year degree. America's wealthiest households, however, well, they send roughly 88% of young adults to college creating a gap that exacerbates socioeconomic differences that are already standing for those living in America's marginalized groups. From an economic standpoint, I'm here to argue that a college education can be one of the, if not the, greatest investment a person can make. There are caveats, like the accessibility caveat I just mentioned, and we'll get into those in today's show. For example, when are graduate programs worth it and how do we know? Is there a difference in the value of a public versus private education? the impact and value college has for social mobility to historically marginalized groups, 
and the choice many make between a two-year college and a four-year college are all fair points. All that aside, there is still clear evidence that a college degree, financially speaking, is worth it. However, there is an entirely different part of college, an intangible part at times, that brings, in my opinion, just as much value as the measurable pieces such as return on investment and average income comparisons. College is a life-changing and often defining experience for those that live it. College is for finding your friends, your passions, deepening your social values, spirituality, and cultural understanding of the world. It's a time for taking risks, sometimes getting in trouble, and hopefully learning life lessons from it. College oftentimes is defined by the best programs, academics, reputation, and experiential opportunities that lead to high-paying jobs. This is certainly a significant part of the value of a degree, but it does not rest in a vacuum. Social and economic values of a college degree are not an either-or decision. They are both and, and they should be viewed that way. Those values and social learnings we inherit from our four years in Collegeville and St. Joe is deeply tied to the high-quality beings and professionals we become after we graduate, and the value of that is oftentimes immeasurable and hard to express as many of us have such a difficult time explaining what a meaningful experience our four years were because of the institutions we attended. So, what is the value of that degree? How do we know it was worth it? How can we make it worth it? And how do we ensure that we, and our children, make the right decision that will ensure value for them? Moreover, in what ways is our college experience and degree worth it that we may not have thought of before? Joining us today to discuss this very important and frequently discussed topic is John McGee. John is a 1984 graduate of St. John's University and currently serves as the St. John's Prep Head of School. He previously served as Vice President for Planning and Strategy at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University for nearly 20 years and is the author of two books, Dear Parents, A Field Guide for College Preparation and Breakpoint, The Changing Marketplace for Higher Education. He also serves as a trustee to the College Board and serves on the faculty of the Harvard Summer Institute on College Admissions. I should note that it is strange introducing him in such a way because he is also my dad. So, John, dad, thanks for chatting about this with us today. Well, Andrew, son, it's great to be here with you. What a privilege. So let's start out with you and your journey and experience to where you're at today at St. John's Prep. Can you share a little bit about your experience through higher education and now secondary education or high school? Did you anticipate a career in higher ed upon graduating from St. John's? And what drew you to higher education that kept you around in the profession in so many ways for as long as it has? Um, I'm not sure I ever really had a plan. I'm a, I'm a living proof of serendipity in, in many, many ways. I um, was a political science major and a history minor at St. John's. And I knew I liked policy and I had planned to go to graduate school to get a degree in public policy, which I did at the University of Minnesota. Uh, but prior to that, and immediately after graduating, I uh, was really fortunate to land a job in the president's office at St. John's with the seemed to me for a 21 year old, the kind of vainglorious title of executive assistant to the president, uh, where I was really introduced to education on the other side. I'd been obviously a student for nearly all of my life up to that point and enjoyed being a student. Uh, and now was working for the university and really working for a college and not just any college, but my alma mater and not just working any place at the college, but working for the president of the college. Um, 
I learned a lot about education in those two years. I met a lot of really amazing people and it really, uh, and I was given opportunities. Father Hillary Timish was the president at the time and he gave me opportunities to really explore that interest in education and education leadership. And I took that with me to graduate school. Uh, coming out of graduate school, again, I wasn't exactly sure. I had a degree, a Master of Arts degree in Public Affairs from the Humphrey School at the university and didn't know exactly where that would lead me. Um, and where it did lead me was to the Minnesota Department of Finance, now called Minnesota Management and Budget, where I was a budget analyst for four years and assigned to the public higher education system accounts. So I was immediately brought into the higher education world and, and a lot of money that was involved and still is involved. I mean, then the annual appropriation for what were four systems, not two, totaled uh, about a little over a billion dollars. But for a 21, well, at that point, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, that seemed like and was a lot of money and a lot of responsibility. And it sort of fostered this interest, deep interest in higher education and higher education policy. I had an opportunity then uh, that just sort of was a fly-in opportunity to, um, to work with the Minnesota Private College Council. It's an organization that represents, for example, St. Ben's and St. John's and the other private colleges in the state in the legislative process and was really fortunate there to have uh, one of the great mentors of my life and career as my boss, Dr. David Laird, um, who provided me with really deep opportunities and really an expectation to get involved in higher education policy and higher education research. And that then launched this kind of career interest. Um, after six years there, knew that I needed to, at some point, transition to a college. And the St. Ben St. John's thing just fell into my lap. Brother Dietrich Reinhardt was president. He called me, he said, we have this position open. Um, and I said, well, I might be interested. And after an hour on the phone, he said, well, you can just have the job. You tell us what we need. So I got to design my own position at St. Ben's and St. John's, which was, uh, I was 30, I don't know, 34 years old, 35 years old. It was a gift to be able to do that. And, um, and I loved it. It was a, a fantastically interesting position um, to you know, studying students, um, helping shape the future of both St. Ben's and St. John's. Um, did that for 20 years. And when the prep school position came open, I was, I was really ready for a change. You had gone to the prep school, your siblings were there. I very much loved this school and had been involved in it anyway. I thought this would be a new opportunity to do something different. Uh, the prep school in many ways as a private school is very quite similar to the issues are the same as, as, as a university. And it was a really significant leadership opportunity. And so I applied, I knew they were looking uh, and likely to hire the first non-monastic leader in the history of the school and um, was offered that position and have loved every minute of it since I began in July of 2019, even though many of those minutes have been spent addressing COVID uh, as much as anything else, but it's been a terrific privilege and opportunity. You've had obviously a very encompassing and and deep experience in higher ed and particularly in the private setting so private college setting um but that doesn't necessarily mean you don't understand the private versus college private versus public college question so considering your background at the minnesota private college council um and at st john's and st ben's and now at the prep school can you point out some of the differences between public and private colleges 
Um, a lot of the people that are listening to this are, of course, graduates of St. Ben's and St. John's, but people do think about master's degrees and the difference between public and private colleges there. Some people's parents obviously went to public and private colleges. Um, and at some point, a lot of these young alums are going to need to consider what the difference is between public and private for their kids too. So how should we think about the public versus private difference? It's a really interesting question because I cut my teeth in education as a budget analyst working with public higher education systems and institutions. So my first, after you know, two years in the president's office at St. John's, but after that, four years really in a significant way working with public institutions in the state. Um, I've never really looked at it so much as public versus private. I tend to look at it as college generally. Um, right. Colleges are quite similar. Um, I mean, they all do, they all off, they're all structured to offer majors, they house students, they provide curricular and co-curricular experiences. Um, they do it a bit differently. Private institutions, particularly sectarian or religiously affiliated institutions like St. Ben's and St. John's, um, do that through a lens of a particular set of values that are important to them and very often important to the students who choose them, and that's part of the experience. Um, scale sometimes is an issue. Um, private institutions, of which there are many in the United States, over 1,500 private colleges in the United States, many of them are small or small-ish, um, but many are not. Some are very, very large uh, as well, like Loyola in Chicago or Boston University. These are very, very large institutions of DePaul. Um, and not all public institutions are as large, for example, as the University of Minnesota or Arizona State uh, University, which are the Ohio State University, which are very large universities. Some are obviously as small as the University of Minnesota Morris, which is very much like um, St. Ben, St. John's, Gustavus. It's a, it's a liberal arts, it's a liberal arts college. Um, and so my, my focus has been often less on public versus private and more into the issue of fit for the student and to really encourage, the colleges know who they are and students in choosing colleges need to know who they are themselves as people. Who am I? Um, what do I value? What do I need? What do I expect? Um, and I encourage students to really think about that when they make that choice rather than starting with public versus private and start, instead start with I, you know, I am, I expect, I value, I need and then look at colleges to see which colleges best match the aspiration that they have. And that could be a public or private institution. I attended public school, K-12, the head of a private school now and a very, very good private school. I also got a very good education in the, in the schools that I attended growing up. Um, I had a wonderful education at St. John's uh, University as well um, in, in the early 1980s. And so I, I think that, um, but they were wonderful educations because they fit who I was and what I needed at the time. And that's the best way to choose a college. This notion of I want, I value, I expect, and I need, I think is a really good way to look at it. And, and the fit versus necessarily putting them into two different buckets and saying it's a, it's a versus type of question. But one entity of, college that I think starts to weigh on how young people in particular are viewing them, and it's increasingly doing so, is elite colleges versus other colleges, um, especially how information is disseminated on social media and the way that 
um, particular heads of businesses or influencers or policymakers talk about where they come from and talk about the value of a of a Ivy League or equivalent education versus you know even putting a, other institutions into a tier two bucket and so on. Um, why are those conversations impacting how young people are viewing their college decision and and what makes a college elite in the sense of all others? Well, oftentimes, that's a really interesting question. Elite colleges get a lot of airplay and ink, um, more than even they, I think, seek or want. Um, I have many, many good friends at elite institutions regarded as elite. Elite typically is a function and defined by scarcity. Um, that is, they are uh, in extraordinary demand and there are very sp few spots available. So when you read about institutions that get 50,000 or 60,000, 70,000 or 100,000 applications for admission for 1,500 spots or 2,000 spots or 4,000 spots, um, those, are, those are institutions that are, uh, have achieved object of desire status. Nearly all of them are wealthy as well. Um, that is, they have very, very large endowments. And um, they um, and they sort of like lots of other products by virtue of being scarce and objects of desire have attained this almost mythical status of elite. But nobody I know who works at an elite college, nobody I know who works at an elite college would describe it as the right fit for everybody, even among students who fit the academic profile of that place. Right. And right. so I think that it has object of desire status is frankly not all that unusual in America or the world. It's the way we buy products. We like, you know, name brands or brands um, are persuasive to many of us and scarcity sometimes creates its own, um, it, it creates its own demand. And these are very, very good institutions in the sense that they bring extraordinary resources, connective resources, faculty resources, research resources to the table to do what they do but they're not right for everybody. There are 4,300 institutions of higher education in the United States comprised of not just four-year public and private institutions, but two-year institutions as well. And so there is in fact, and there's more than one, there are many institutions for any given person um, in the country. And I encourage you know, my students at the prep school, I encouraged you and your siblings, um, to look, uh, to think of that, not just as the one, or, or to look past the dazzle and the brilliance and to go back to the question, I questions, I am, I expect, I value, I need, is this place right for me? Um, and you find often, very, well, first of all, understand that college, um, the input sort of output function of college goes like this. The student is the primary input to their own outcome, no matter where they go. If you work hard, no matter where you go, you can have tremendous outcomes. If you don't, you often won't, no matter where you go. And so it's, it, it often is less about a particular institution than it is about your willingness to engage that institution and the opportunity it provides, no matter where you choose to go. I'm not... I'm just not um, a fan of the sort of the dazzling light of saying that these are the only colleges that matter and nobody else does. In fact, they all matter for different reasons to different people. And, uh, and what's important is that students understand that. 
Okay, so continuing on this thread then of I want, I value, I expect, and I need, um, and the impacts that certain institutions play on, on a decision for college or the value of a college degree, I would say the biggest impact on a perception of a college degree or the value of a college degree is the role of debt, student or family, and how that plays into the college choice. So that being said, how do you perceive the role of debt in college changing as conversations on loan forgiveness and education assistance become more prominent? But even before that, what type of role should the consideration of taking on debt play in terms of understanding the value of college for both families and students when they're there and when they graduate? Um, I'm going to blow your question out a little bit. Um, Do it. Say that it isn't um, the role of debt becomes sort of a secondary question to sort of uh, what am I going to have to pay just generally, whether it's in the form of debt or any other means. Why does college cost so much? Um, how much am I gonna have to pay? And what's quite clear is that um, for many, many people, um, cost price is a third rail issue. I mean, it, 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 is, the, uh, it is the sum of all fears uh, for, for many families and for, not, um, and, and for not unwarranted reasons that for uh, many institutional choices, the, um, the cost of college will be after the price of a home, the next largest investment that a family will make. And so it is, it's an extraordinary investment. It's an extraordinary investment for a family. It's an extraordinary investment for, um, for a student. I'll, I'll hold on the reason why college costs so much, but I will address the issue of debt because I think it's important. And I think the interesting thing about debt is how badly misunderstood it is. Um, and, and, and how people um, should think about it. And I wrote about this um, in my book. Um, news about student loan debt is always cast now in ruinous or threatening terms that every person who borrows um, somehow has this debt that's just a crushing debt and they'll never get out of it. But nearly four in 10 baccalaureate degree recipients at all public and uh, not-for-profit four-year colleges don't borrow at all. So almost 40% borrow zero, and most borrow less than $10,000 over the course of their undergraduate education. Debt is a different calculus in graduate school for many, many people. But big debt burdens make great copy, but they remain relatively, huge debt burdens remain relatively rare across all students. For those who carry them, they're very, they can be very, very significant. Um, I think there's no one size fits all answer to that question. But I ask you to keep, and the listeners, to keep four things in mind. Um, first of all, borrowing expands or can expand college options, which can allow you to consider a wider range of school. That is, it provides you with resources you otherwise wouldn't have as a family. The second is, and this is important, the type of loan matters. Federal loans, some state loans, offer the lowest interest rates and the most flexible repayment options private loans cost more and almost always require a creditworthy co-signer. So know the difference between loans. The third, and I think people don't think about this enough is how do I even think about how the, how's your payment gonna work? Well, I think what you can basically keep in mind is this formula, monthly payments on a student loan are total approximately 1% of the principal amount borrowed. So if you borrow $10,000, um, you're going to pay, you know, right around 100 bucks a month. 
um, for that loan repayment for 10 years if that on a federal loan. That's about what it's going to come out to be. Now, stretch that. If you borrow $100,000, um, that's a, obviously a much larger amount of money, and you should think about that. But the fourth one is the one I think that people miss most often, and that is borrowing is an entitlement. If you are eligible to take a loan, you can take it. Whether a college has packaged it for you or not, whether a college recommends or doesn't recommend that you take it, and that makes borrowing attractive and really dangerous. And so my bottom line and my advice on borrowing and debt is borrow first only what you need. You and I had that conversation. Borrow only what you need and then think very carefully about what you need. So taking that into consideration, because oftentimes, like you just mentioned, it's, it's part of a family choice, not just an individual's choice. I would argue more often than not, although there's caveats, how should a family frame the college choice? You know, what role do parents play in that process? Um, and why aren't all colleges right for everyone? And how can that be discerned in the process of a family decision? That is such a great question. And so I, um, I'd offer five points on this and they're simple. The first is, since a lot of your listeners are young alums, perhaps just starting families, get in the habit of saving. First of all, just because it's good for you. Um, it's good for your family. It's good for your children. It's good for the long-term. And it doesn't have to be, if you don't have it, colossal amounts of saving. It can be putting aside 50 or $100 a month. Um, if you have children, open a 529 account because they're contributory accounts. So it means other people, grandparents, friends, whatever, instead of buying a toy, can spend, you know, contribute $50, for example, to a 529 account. Take advantage of the luxury of time and the interest value of money over time. Um, so save. The second is, I think you have to define value for yourself as you look at this. And this is why I, I'll go back to what I said earlier about looking beyond the dazzle or the sort of love piece of this. Because all colleges want you to fall in love. This is about love. Um, we want you to fall in love with us so you choose us. But understand what that means in terms of value. Andrew, I tell the story of you all the time about beats versus bows. It's one of my favorite stories when your over-ear headphones broke. Thousands of people have heard that story across the country, and I wrote it into my book. You know, when your headphones broke and it came down to all the research you did, more than for college, on beats and bows, and the bows were $200 and the beats were $350 or something like that. And I was convinced you were gonna buy the Beats because of the brand and you chose the Bose. I'm still a little surprised about that. But nonetheless, because you couldn't define that incremental cost of the Beats was not worth the value they were gonna generate. That's the same thing when we buy everything. And so you need to apply that kind of thinking to college. The third piece is know your limits. Know how much money you have. And I always, we, the most, difficult conversations at St. Ben's and St. John's were always about when families got into it and they might have cobbled it together for the first year, but there's three more left or there's more kids to follow. And so know your limits on what you can afford and think about that, which doesn't mean don't apply, but it does mean think about that 
when you, re, when you get a financial aid package. You cannot simply respond by saying, my child so badly wants to go to this place that I'm gonna wish that everything works out. It doesn't, that very often leads to very bad conclusions. The fourth is talk to your kids about money. A lot of parents really just hate talking to their kids about money. And most kids really don't know much about what their parents earn. They make judgments about what their parents earn on the basis of the house they live in, the cars they drive, the vacations they take, the kind of food they eat, how often they go out to eat, the kind of lifestyle. Um, but that's not a very good, uh, very accurate indicator uh, often. And so talk to your kids about money. And finally, if you have any doubts at all, apply for financial aid. There's not a financial aid professional in the world who hasn't heard every possible question. And if you have any doubts, you should apply for financial aid. In fact, in fact, I advise people just generally apply for financial aid. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, well, it's the hassle of the paperwork, but it's a valuable thing to do because you don't know, uh, especially if you have multiple kids in college um, or for example, if you have multiple children at private schools before college, different colleges look at different, uh, different expenses differently. It's very often valuable to apply for financial aid. So those five things, save, define value, know your limits, talk to your kids about money and apply for aid. The only bad question in this case is the one that isn't asked. A lot of the sentiment that revolves around the value of college, whether you're making the decision as a child is going to college, whether you're questioning your decisions when you're in the middle of your studies in your sophomore year, or whether you're sitting in an office at 28, 48, or 68 and looking at your degree on the wall and thinking, was this really worth it? All of those questions, the, the key words that seem to revolve around them the most frequently are related to money or academic achievement or resources available, things like that. But there are other aspects to a college degree that you, in your, um, in, in the talks that you give and, and, and in the way that you describe college define a soul craft versus the career craft of college. Um, and in, in soul craft, I think what you're getting at is these, un, these intangible pieces of college that, that make it worth it that you can't necessarily put a finger on, but when you look back on them, they're the things that you end up remembering the most and make that degree on the wall worth it. And they're not defined by resources available, money given, et cetera. So before we get to the encompassing question of how we evaluate and understand the worth of college, why should we, and how do we factor in these soul craft pieces of college? And can you explain a little bit from, from in your own sure. words on what you mean by that? Sure. So college or education generally at any level has uh, historically had two really important purposes. Um, the first is what I would call instrumental um, or preparatory or transactional. That is, I, I, I learn a skill, I learn a piece of knowledge. In the case of college, the transactional or instrumental purpose would be I learn the skill that will help me prepare for a successful professional life. I can do something. It answers the question, what can I do? And that's where I go with career craft. And it's important. It's, it, it's clearly important. And whole sectors of education, that's the primary issue they deal with. In technical education, much of two-year education, or in professional education, those become, that becomes the overridingly important uh, question to answer. But the second thing that education does 
is, is really more uh, transformative. Um, or, um, and um, it's not instrumental. It, asks, it gets at the questions of efficacy, agency, integrity, morality, um, connectedness, community. Um, if you're at a, a religiously affiliated school, it can be spirituality. All Sounds of those like the Benedictine values. And so, yeah. And all of those things that are an explicit part of the education. And they are set up to answer the question, what should I do? And my assertion, and even to my students now at St. John's Prep, as they look at college and they think of their futures, is that um, um, you will spend more time in your life answering, uh, being faced with the question, what should I do, than what can I do? In fact, you can do almost anything. Uh, you can learn almost anything. At almost any point in your life, you could choose to learn a new skill. But the what should I do piece um, becomes um, something quite different. And how do you have the framework for answering the kinds of questions that you will face in a professional life at some point uh, that where, where an answer one way or the other is not clear and you need to understand and have a framework for answering that question perhaps in a non-transactional way. I think what's been tragic about education in the United States, perhaps around the world, but certainly in the United States generally, is that the transactional narrative of higher education has swept over the transformative narrative and the transform to the point where the only way we're supposed to evaluate college is do you earn more? The answer is yes. On average, you can earn more. Are unemployment rates lower or employment rates higher? Yes, both of those are true. Um, are the economic benefits on average robust? Absolutely true. It's been true. It remains true. Is that the only reason you go to college? No. And in fact, when we survey new entering students, we find out every year, and I did this for years and years at St. Ben's and St. John's, that students are far more sophisticated in thinking about college than we give them credit for. Most of them want to not, clearly they want to prepare for successful lives after college, but they also want to learn more about things that interest them. They want to understand how to wrestle with and deal with important life questions. That's a value of education. And I think that um, the degree, you can evaluate that. Those aren't soft skills either. I hate that when they're called soft skills because in fact, those are the kinds of skills that last the course of a lifetime. They never go away. All transactional skills are at risk of obsolescence. That is the practices change, the technology changes, something, something technical changes. Um, and suddenly what I, you know, when I was in junior high, our shop teacher made us all take apart a carburetor. Nobody even knows what a carburetor is anymore. Um, and so uh, if that's all I knew how to do was fix carburetors, I don't have a lot to do today. And so I think this idea of thinking about, well, what else? How have I learned to be a good person? How have I connected with people on campus? All of those are value. And I think the older you get and the further away you get from college, and I'm a long ways away right now, I value college and the college experience differently now than I, I'm certain that I did when I was 22 or 23. That's a really good way to put, I think, in, in how I see the purpose of this podcast serving itself to a lot of young alums is the further away you get from college, you understand the value of it differently. And as, as you get further and further away, that value changes from a, more of a transactional mindset to more of a, 
uh, a quality-based mindset? You know, what type of leader did I become? And this episode is interesting now that I look at it as almost a culmination of that. When you look at who I've interviewed up to this point, um, Scott Kranz in changing his complete direction of work because he wanted to follow something that called to him more so than, you know, working at a desk for a prominent law firm. Um, look at Jonna Van Dune and her history of working um, and her passion behind the projects that she's done over the course of her career. Margaret Murphy has been a leader in every role she's ever taken on. Um, Kurt and Mary Schweeters are saving lives every day and doing so with passion and empathy in other countries too. Um, and, and to see that transactional piece come out as you get older in college is something that I think some of us do see at a younger age, but should pay more attention to. St. Ben's and St. John's does an exceptional job of breeding leaders. Um, and oftentimes it's really hard, and this is really for the listeners, it's really hard to portray that when you're in an interview, because a lot of the questions that you're going to be asked at a job for Boston Scientific, uh, McKinsey, Accenture, Optum, they're going to be quantifying questions. They're not going to be quality-based questions. Um, and as you get older, those quality-based questions become more and more important. And that's why St. Ben's and St. John's has so many leaders in the industries that we do. Um, I think that's a, that's a really good point to make at, at this point of the interview. Um, but I do want to keep moving forward because um, there, there are questions about postgraduate now or graduate degrees, I guess, that I want to get into. Um, so what happens when we factor in the cost and potential value of getting a graduate degree? Um, and what are those key determinants of value that we should be looking at before we take on another degree? Because that's, like you mentioned earlier, wholly different than pursuing an undergraduate degree at 18 because graduate degrees you can be pursuing at 35 or older for that matter. Um, so how has that perception of the values of these particular degrees changed and what should impact our decisions when we're looking to receive those particular degrees? You know, that, that's a really particularly interesting question. I haven't been asked that question that before. Um, I think one of the great tragedies in American education is that a high school degree as something preparatory for post high school life has been uh, without any conversation at all diminished to not very much. Um, that in fact, a high school degree now is principally set up to prepare you for college. Um, now, not just four-year college, it could be two-year college, but that it, it uh, high school, certainly when I was in high school, you know, there were still, for example, technical programs or shop programs or auto programs in my high school that a lot of students were involved in because that's what they intended to do when they graduated from high school and they could find jobs. Well, none of those are there like that anymore. And high schools are actually quite good at preparing people for college. Um, the question now rolling forward is, well, what does college prepare you for? An undergraduate degree in college. And in some cases, as um, the economy has become more sophisticated, um, and as especially as the desire for specialization not just the desire, but the need and the move to specialization and the stakes associated with some aspects of that have amped up, that graduate degrees become more important. So, and some of them are just the most obvious ones. I mean, you're not gonna be a doctor if you don't have a medical degree. And so you need, you need to go to med school. You cannot be a practicing attorney without a JD. And so you go to law school. Um, I think it's a, it's a little bit different calculus for for people you know, in different kinds of graduate degrees. Some people pursue graduate degrees um, for career advancement. 
and, um, and in fact, salary structures um, and advancement opportunities are built around graduate degrees and you should be attentive to that in the career choices that you make, um, whether it's an MBA, whether it's an EDD, whether it's an MA in something, all, you should be attentive to that. Um, and I'll give this story because I'm, I'm sort of what happened. So I got a graduate degree in public affairs from the University of Minnesota at the Humphrey School. So I have a master's degree. And around age 40, and that master's degree served me, has served me very, very well. I loved the Humphrey School, it was a great experience and, and it prepared me exceptionally well for what I did and continue to do. However, in higher education, um, the PhD or a doctoral degree of some kind is the current, is the primary currency. And um, at around the age of 42, I said to your mom, you know, I think I should get a PhD. And she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, before you get a PhD, don't forget you're a DAD. And at that time, there were four of you, you were the oldest, you were eight, Kate had just been born. And so this was, uh, and that was not proffered as advice. That was offered, that was uh, far more directive than it was advisory. And it was pretty clear that I wasn't gonna be able to be a, a good parent, a good spouse, um, and go to graduate school and work, by the way, in the way I wanted to. And so I think there's a point in your life where you just say, well, okay, that wasn't gonna be, that wasn't gonna be my future. Maybe it will be later just because I want to do it. But I think when you go to graduate school, you need to carefully, it's different than undergraduate because at graduate school, you're, you're almost always narrowing. And so you need to very carefully understand your motivations and your aspirations because there you can make an undergraduate, the, the value of a comprehensive experience can serve you in so many ways. It's not a comprehensive experience in graduate school. It's a focused experience. And you don't wanna find yourself on the end of having made a very expensive mistake. Balance is, is clearly prominent here in that, in that decision. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for, it was pretty clear that I was going to be a mobile that would crash had I uh, had I gone to uh, had I pursued that doctoral degree, and it was so tempting at the time because the dazzle of it was is that's the great world. So instead, I wrote a couple of books. Easy switch. So balance balance has been a big question in the last nineteen months in everybody's lives, regardless of whether we're talking about college work. Um, you know, changing from your office chair to your living room couch while working. Um, balance has been considered more important now than probably ever. Um, and that's as a result of, of COVID and, and, and the ongoing pandemic. So that being said, how has COVID changed the value of college and, and in particular the economic return on college? Um, you know, a lot's been said about whether it's permanently changed the experience because of things like hybrid learning, um, classes online versus classes in person. And, and that gets a little bit at the intangible qualities of a college degree as well, especially at residential schools where that's so important, like St. Bud's and St. John's. So how has that changed the value of college moving forward? And is that a permanent change? We asked me two different things. One is about balance in work life and what is that, what has COVID meant? And the other is kind of the broader sort of economic question, has COVID um, structurally changed um, economic opportunity. Um, on the first one, I, 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 I included this quote in my book. I use it in all my presentations. It's from Thomas Merton. And I think it is, it, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, the theologian uh, monk, Thomas uh, Merton. You do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it's all going. What you need 
is to recognize the possibilities and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. I love that as, as a kind of marker to say, we don't need to know how everything is going to transpire uh, in, uh, in the future. And in fact, we can't. I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not a, I'm not a soothsayer or a predictor. Um, I, I'm not um, or a seer. I don't do, I can't, I can't do that. Um, I think in terms, you know, we're beginning to see early evidence that COVID um, by virtue of sending everybody home for a long period of time has in fact changed the ways people think about their dream jobs and what they want to do, that they, they discovered a part of themselves that they, that they had been missing and valued by virtue of having, for example, to be home. And I think in that sense, that can be for many people quite a positive outcome. Um, for others, they can't wait to get back and, um, and, and, and to get back onto some course that was like uh, what it was. I think it's too early to determine whether any of that is permanent. That's also part of my answer to the second question about has there been a structural change in the economy? Um, I think that it is way too early to, uh, to determine that. I think that demographically, if you just want to put it that way, especially for young people, um, what we know is that the, the um, birth rates and the number of births in the U.S. have plummeted since 2007, with the exception of one year. There was one small blip and one year back up, but the number of births in America are way down. And th these are suggestive of very long-term trends. And you've got a lot of baby boomers still here who are retiring in very significant numbers now. And um, I think that, is there going to be opportunity? Yes. In fact, you've got job openings everywhere now. And part of the issue is aligning the right people with the right job opportunities. And that can be about a lot of factors, um, geography, preparation, sometimes luck, um, all of those things come into play. But, but I think that there will be, that COVID did not end economic opportunity for people, not by any means. And I think it's too early to tell, for example, you know, the people, everybody's now gonna talk the way you and I are talking over Zoom. No, um, I think we learned a lot about Zoom. We learned a lot about its value, but we also learned a lot about what we didn't like about it and how it, we learned about how it worked and how it didn't work as well. So it becomes not a replacement, but instead more of a supplement. And where else is that going to happen? What's the next great change? I, you know, you can be very persuaded by the early 20th century economist, Joseph Schumpeter, who talked about creative disruption and that, that for an economy to continue to progress, it always destroys what was and replaces it creatively with something else. And, um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people in, in that process of creative destruction, some people, um, and we need to be very attentive to this, get frozen out of the opportunity associated with something new. And so this is again, another role of college. How do we ensure that opportunity is widely available and shared to everybody so that we don't create per people who permanently lose because of changes, whether they're wrought by COVID or anything else. So all that being said, um, to, to kind of conclude this, and these are, these are really big questions to, to conclude with, but if, if, if we can even conclude them in, in a short way, because it's, it's such a big question or big questions, 
why is the, the value of a college degree still worth it? And looking to the horizon and the future of higher ed and the value of a college degree, will that perception of value change or put in a different way? Will it still be worth it in five, 10, 15 years down the road? Um, well, first of all, I think perceptions of value in higher education have never stayed exactly the same. And by the way, higher education has never stayed the same. There are, it is constantly adding and changing degree programs and responding to changes in the world. Pedagogy today or teaching is different than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, or certainly 50 or 75 years ago. So none of this is static. It is always dynamic in some sense. It's very much like a mobile, and it is constantly it is constantly in motion. Um, I think that you know, is college still worth it economically? The answer is yes. Um, the, the economic data, and I just and I looked right before I got got on this call, just because I wanted to look and just at one statistic, and it was the uh, employment status of Americans twenty five years and over by educational attainment in July of twenty twenty one. So last month, most recent data available. Well, the unemployment rate for people with a bachelor's degree or higher was 3.1%. The uh, employment population ratio, which is so how many people are in the labor force is 70, was 70%. Well, for people who are high school graduate, no college, the unemployment rate was 6.3%, so it was twice as high. And that's for people who are in the labor force. But among those who are high school graduates with no college, only 52% were even in the labor force. Those are the kinds of compelling data. I mean, the labor force, the economy is still rewarding the degree. Does everybody get the same reward? No, they do not. Do choices matter? Absolutely. All of those things come into play and you need to think about that. Averages are lovely. They make great story, but averages are just that. And you know, some people are, earn, for example, earn more, some people earn less but I, the economy still values it. And frankly, as an experience, for the reasons that you valued your St. John, St. Ben's education, and the reason I continue to value my St. John, St. Ben's education, um, and for what it meant in terms of the lifelong associations, um, in my case and yours too, I think, this sort of the importance of Benedictine values and their practice in life, in their meaning, in my life or yours. Um, those are things that were all, the, 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 these are the kinds of things that were gained here. They were important then, they are more important to me now, and they will continue to remain important to people over time. That doesn't answer the question, at what price are you willing to pay? That still is a question families have to answer. Um, but three quarters of all Americans believe, survey data, that it's easier to be successful with a college degree than without. But 80% believe that most people who enroll in higher education benefit from it. The problem is that fewer than 25% believe that higher education is in America is fine just how it is. And that's the conundrum for higher education. It's also one of the great conundrums of America. We're often sort of in a push me pull you relationship with ourselves on big issues. But in any case, um, colleges still have to actively seek ways to create value, provide value to the students that they enroll. It is not a one-time decision fits all. And it's important that they do that. I think that's a that's a really good way to conclude that. You know, there seems to be this 
ubiquity that colleges work towards to be a living and breathing thing. College has never been a one-size-fits-all in terms of who can attend college and who should attend a specific college, but it's also not a one-size-fits-all in the way that college is going to express or, or um, give out value to those, whether you're in 2021, um, 1984, or um, in 2050. Um, you know, that's going to change. And so for that reason alone, it almost sounds like college will be worth it because that's one of the sole purposes of college is to ensure that it is worth it from both a, a quality perspective and from a, what it can provide for you in terms of giving you a more successful life. Um, so you, you spent, you know, the, the greater part of your life defining these sort of, these sort of things. Um, how, how is, how is college successful for those who are attending it? Why is it su successful? How will it continue to be successful? Um, and now you're you're leading a, a school at which prepares students under college age to be successful in college and beyond. That being said, um, you are still living this and there's got to be something that's next. So as we end this episode, like we end all other episodes, what is next for you? Um, what a fun question. Um, let me start by saying I've been at the prep school now for a little over two years. Um, I love this school. This has been an, an completely um, remarkable, tremendous um, um, opportunity and a privilege. I mean, in this sense, it fills me. It fills me professionally. It fills me personally. And um, I'm fortunate to be here. I work with great people. Our students are outstanding. And um, it's, it's, it really has been a joy. Um, I, I've never really wanted to answer the question, what do I want to be when I grow up, even though I'm nearly 59? Um, and I think that um, there will be a what's next. Um, when I interview young people, well, really anybody, but especially young people, especially in the roles that I had at St. John's, um, I would ask them, you know, just give me three adjectives that describe you. And for me to have hired them, um, one of them had to be curious. Uh, because to be curious is to be interesting. And to be curious is to have the opportunity is to have the sort of will and perhaps drive to discover something or to think differently about something. And I, for me, I remain curious about lots of things. I've had this really fortunate experience that I had a significant leadership role in higher education for a long period of time. Now I get a significant leadership role at a, at a secondary school um, and very few people get to do both of those. And you know, perhaps when I'm older and, uh, and I'm, you know, at the point of retirement um, from the prep school, that that will be a value to somebody to say, you know, hopefully that I'll have something to say grand about um, to help other either students or families or institutions help find their way. I think that's a very admirable way to answer what is next for you. So... <laughs> John, Dad, thank you for joining us. Um, Andrew, you know, this it's been is a really, really pleasure. <laughs> thank you. And it's, it, I, I, this is a really important topic, and it's one that I've wanted to talk about for a really long time because everybody that has joined us this far has, it, most people that have, have joined us thus far have a lived experience that's very, very closely associated to this topic um, all the way up to the point of, of living the experience at St. John's and St. John's themselves. Um, so I think this was very informative. I certainly learned a lot and I know everybody else that is joining will as well. So thank you again for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. We'll continue this discussion, um, at the kitchen table sometime. <laughs>
Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode of So What's Next. If you have any questions about this episode or you would like more resources, please DM the Yak Instagram page or email us at csbsjuyac at gmail.com and we will get in touch. As we move into the fall months, I encourage you to reach out if you have any recommendations on speakers or topics you'd like us to cover, or if you have any feedback for the show. Nothing is off the table, and we're always looking to answer the most important questions on the most prominent topics for alums. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to So What's Next on your platform of choice and share it with your friends. We are looking forward to seeing you here next time.